0: I'm Brett Waters. I've been in Silicon Valley my entire life, immersed in the world of entrepreneurship, innovation, and venture capital. I run a startup accelerator program named Fourthly. This is the Fourthly Podcast. Well, hi, and welcome to another in our continuing series of panel discussions for investors and entrepreneurs. Joining me now is my co-host,
1: Louis. Good afternoon, Brett, and I am so glad to have such a great group of people coming together to talk about a topic that is uh, uh, very topical.
0: We've got a pretty good panel today, Louis. So um, so Louis, I am old enough, it's hard to believe, but I am old enough to remember when it was illegal for a U.S. citizen to travel to China. <laughs> and then Richard Nixon famously became the first U.S. president to visit communist China. And the State Department then uh, opened up travel for U.S. citizens. And not too long after that, the new Chinese leader, Deng Xiaoping, opened up the economy and began to embrace capitalism, right? And what followed was a pretty amazing four decades of growth uh, and economic prosperity for both countries. Uh, A lot of cross-border investment and a whole lot of um, economic codependency. And we now kind of seem like we're entering a new era. You might even call it a decoupling. Um, You know, and maybe it first started in 2015 when Donald Trump started... A lot of rhetoric, a lot of anti-China rhetoric. And uh, then the Biden administration has been a little softer in the rhetoric, but has certainly been continuing the policies of uh, kind of increasingly reducing national security and, um, and economic risk vis-a-vis China. Um, and that all kind of came to a head a couple of weeks ago with a new executive order from the Biden administration. And joining us to explain more about that new executive order and what it all means is uh, Christopher Swift. Hey, Chris.
2: Hey, Brad. Hey, Louie. It's good to be with you both.
0: Maybe you can give us the one minute background around yourself to begin with, Chris.
2: Sure. Happy to do it. I'm a national security lawyer on uh, Foley and Learner's white collar practice. We handle international and national security risks for a broad spectrum of clients uh, covering just about every country in the world and just about every industry you can contemplate. Uh, and it's our job to help clients identify, evaluate, and mitigate risks that can arise from cross-border problems, uh, including but not limited to Chinese investments in the United States that used to be subject and continue to be subject to the CFIUS review process, sanctions and export controls, which is something you know we're seeing uh, prioritized in the U.S.-China relations, and now the new executive order on U.S. outbound investment, that's U.S. investment coming from the United States and then going out to China, Hong Kong, and Macau. Um so a, a set of very interesting cross-border challenges that integrate business law and national security in a way that really requires a coordinated
0: collaborative approach. Terrific. Thanks, Christopher. And um the executive order, you want to try to summarize it for us? Yeah, so
2: the executive order basically comes down to a a couple of key things, right? There's a lot of hype in the press about the executive order, but the bottom line is the Biden administration is using a law called the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. dates back to 1979, and they're basically saying the risk of U.S. investment in certain types of Chinese companies is so great that there's a national security risk. And as a result of that national security risk, they're going to be implementing within the next coming months. Probably process will take between six months and 18 months by the time we're all done. um, New regulations that will say that U.S. persons who are investing in China, Hong Kong and Macau, and who are also investing in certain high risk sectors like semiconductors and artificial intelligence and other pretty sexy Silicon Valley stuff, um, that those kinds of companies will need to do uh, notify the government about their investment and that the government may have the ability to block those investments and unwind them in the future. So the opposite of what we see when Chinese companies come to the United States and try to invest in certain types of U.S. companies. Um, one of the things that's really interesting about this is, for those of you who are familiar with the CFIUS process, there's a whole set of laws that you know govern CFIUS, and they're pretty set in stone and they're pretty objective and pretty clear. Um, the laws that the Biden administration are using in this instance, are the same laws we use to govern economic sanctions. So there's a lot more flexibility. And one of the things that'll be key to watch in the next three, to six months will be exactly what kind of regulations does the Treasury Department promulgate, exactly what kinds of companies are prioritized and exactly who is gonna be subject to these notification requirements. That's all a work in progress and we're tracking it very closely, but based on the way the executive order is set up, we have a good sense of what's coming.
0: Awesome. Thanks for that quick overview. Chris, HK, good afternoon.
3: Good afternoon or good morning, depending upon where you are.
0: Yeah. Well, we're going to get to Kerr in a minute. He's in the early time zone, but HK, I believe you're in, you're in, uh, you're in DC, you're in in DC. Is that right? Correct. Correct. All right. So what can you tell us about this new EO? Sure. Let me
3: just say that uh, I'm H.K. Park. I'm a managing director at Crumpton Global. We are an intelligence and risk management advisory firm here in Washington. And uh, we spent a lot of our time focused on due diligence for M&A transactions and for investments. Uh, we've been actually preparing investors for this regulation for the past few years. Um, and I think one common question is, how did we get here? Um, this is the outcome of U.S.-China friction that's been bubbling up in the past uh, three or four years. Um, you know the goal of the Biden administration is to close what they view as a loophole in our export controls uh, to limit the uh, outbound capital and knowledge that goes into Chinese companies in certain um, sectors that Chris had mentioned. Um, what's interesting, this started under President Trump and was continued under President Biden. Um, folks may not remember, but back in November 2020, on the on the towards the end of the Trump administration, uh, President Trump issued an executive order. Uh, restricting uh, American investment in public Chinese companies uh, connected to the Chinese military. When Biden took office a few months later, he adopted that same executive order and expanded it. And shortly thereafter, his national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, made a speech, I think summer of 2021, talking about the need to uh, close this quote-unquote loophole um, that allows for uh, investment to go into the same companies that we restrict uh, exports to.
0: Got it. Thanks for that, HK. And also joining us at an ungodly hour is uh, Kirk Gibbs. Hey, Kirk. Hey,
4: Brent. Good morning. Good to see you all. So, where
0: are you, and what time is
4: it? Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's <laughs> right. It's um, yeah. I'm here in Shanghai, and it's uh, five in the morning. Uh, all so right. Good morning to you all.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for making the effort. Appreciate it, Kurt. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, quick back- background on yourself, and then. Uh, Dive into what you'd like to tell us about this new executive order.
4: Just quick background: I'm the immediate past president, so uh, of the American Chamber of Commerce. So that's what I was doing until fairly recently. American Chamber of Commerce um, over here represents a group of about 3,000 American businesses operating um, on the ground here. Um, my my professional background: I'm a, a former technology banker with HSBC. And uh, and I'm from Silicon Valley originally, so that's kind of the um, the the perspective that I bring. And I've been living over here, been in Asia probably the last you know 30 years or so. Been living here in Shanghai for the last uh, 20, and at this point, I kind of split my time between uh, my home here in Shanghai and um, and in San Francisco, where I'm an executive in residence at the University of San Francisco, and I also advise companies um, and sit on a couple of boards. So yeah
0: okay and perspective on uh on the events of the last few weeks
4: yeah quick perspective and also just on the business and investment climate over here in china it's it's quite remarkable i've actually never seen anything like it The you know people really have lost confidence here um the mood is grim it's a result of a lot of different things, a lot of regulatory changes, lost confidence in you know how how zero COVID was handled and the aftermath thereof, but also even before that, I think the some of the impact of um, the the sort of discipline that was imposed on the technology sector. And I think we've got a few things coming up. We're sort of seeing fairly similar. Set of events evolve around healthcare now, and and some of the anti-corruption efforts around the hospitals. So there is, um, and then of course everybody's watching the property market. So we're watching that kind of unfold. Um, specific reactions to the EO, um, as amazing as it sounds, there's so much trouble in the market already that U.S.-China relations actually is the least of their problems. It's definitely in the background, and it's on everybody's mind, but not on the front of their mind at this moment, and a lot of that, again, is the, the, the economic malaise. Reaction to the EO, I'm actually expecting a fairly muted response for a couple of reasons. Uh, One is the expectation is already baked in. So they actually had been watching this for a while, expected it to come. Probably may have expected it to be even broader than it has been. Number two, um, the the visit by Janet Yellen. I mean, she her part of her mission was to kind of get the dialogue going again, but also set the stage. She prepared them for what was surely coming because everybody had mm-hmm. been really talking about it. Third, and this is a little bit disturbing, is they've almost given up. You know, I'm talking about in Beijing now that almost no matter what they do, they're not going to really get to get the U.S. off this track of, of 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 imposing these kind of restrictions on China, no matter what they do. So they, and and that's a disturbing trend. Um, you know, I think the I think we would all agree that, you know, a dialogue and interaction between the governments is a good thing. And if one side or the other has 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 literally given up on the relationship, then that leads to an even darker place. So, um, so, but there is that sentiment there. Uh, so, those are some of the reasons why um, I'm expecting a fairly muted response to the to the EO itself.
0: So, Christopher, I assume you've been getting calls from clients, um, you know, who are saying, you know, does this mean I can't invest in China anymore? Yeah. What does this mean? Um, well, the, so how do you, how do you answer those questions?
2: Yeah, that the, the answer is we don't know quite yet. Um, the and the other part of the answer is it's not a matter of don't go, it's a matter of go carefully with the right kind of planning, preparation, and advisors. So let me let me just back up here a little bit and talk about all the things the U.S. government has done to make things complicated with China. First, there's the U.S.-China trade war and they, you know, higher tariffs on Chinese goods. Second, there is dialing up U.S. export controls, just like HK was talking about earlier, taking our existing laws that limit the transfer of commodities and technologies, know-how from the United States to China, really, you know, bolstering those rules, trying to make it harder and harder for Chinese companies to take advantage of U.S. technology, even when the products in question are developed overseas through stuff like the military end-use rule or the foreign direct products products rule. We've seen the United States government impose certain types of investment-based sanctions, on getting into certain types of chinese public companies that are involved in the chinese military industrial base we've seen the committee on foreign investment in the united states that's the multi-agency committee the treasury department that conducts national security reviews of chinese and other foreign investments in u.s companies go from you know, oh, 10 on a scale from one to 10 to 27 on a scale from one to 10, whatever this in Chinese investor, even if we don't have some of these critical technology rules and is that if that all of that wasn't enough, they're now layering on top this foreign investment review process. So that's six or seven layers of aggravation time and cost that you need to add when you're considering any kind of US China venture. That doesn't mean you can't go. It just means the light in the intersection is flashing yellow and you had better tap the brakes and check your surroundings before you go through the intersection. How do you do that? You engage a team like HK's team at Crumpton to do the diligence of who your business partners are. You engage good legal counsel both on the corporate side and on the national security side, who can help you take the kind of intelligence that HK and his team can develop and put that in a practical framework from a business perspective and from a government enforcement perspective. And then look, you listen to folks on the ground, like Kerr, who understand who is doing what and what they're doing and how they're doing it and who they're doing it with. If, If you go carefully, there is a way forward. But if you pretend that that yellow light isn't blinking in the intersection that yellow light could turn into a red light whether it's the chinese government doing it to you or the u.s government doing it to you and what the u.s government is saying with this new executive order is we have one more red light that we can throw up in the event that you're not paying attention
4: and not driving carefully
0: so hk it kind of sounded like like chris was giving you a little promo there um but maybe you could tell us hk so i think this deal is not finalized right and so kind of who Who are the principal players that are going to be involved in finalizing this?
3: Right. So now there's a 45-day clock that kicked off uh, and expires on September 28th, I believe, for um, interested parties to submit feedback to the Treasury Department. After that, Treasury will create their draft regulation put out in the Federal Register, I believe. Uh, And you might see the the final version come out, I believe, in 2024 at some point. Hmm. So who's involved? I mean, you know, obviously the different agencies involved. There's you know, a little bit of different views depending upon where you sit. I think Treasury and Commerce have one perspective. I assume that Defense Department and other um, intelligence agencies have a more of a hawkish view about how to approach this. Uh, Another important player is Congress. So we haven't talked about um, the draft legislation that's currently sitting um, on the Hill in terms of expanding the um, restrictions here and notifying Congress and the government about many more sectors than just the three identified by the executive order. Um, there's also a select committee on the Chinese Communist Party led by Congressman Gallagher, which has been aggressively um, sending letters to venture capital firms and others asking about past investments as well as the process for vetting new investments. That committee does not have authority to uh, create new legislation, but they are influencing, I believe, the debate on the Hill as well as uh, within the administration. Um, and then let us not forget the political actors who are entering an important uh, election year uh, next year in the U.S. Uh, we'll have a new person potentially in the White House um, in, in 2025 or the second term of President Biden and we have presidential contenders who are also uh, making their own statements known about how they view China and how aggressive we should be towards China which I think is also affecting the debate and may be affecting the ultimate form of the uh, regulation.
0: So. If if anybody you know if people want to try to lobby to affect uh, to have input on this is there a is there a mechanism for that?
3: Yeah, Treasury created a, an open, transparent way to submit feedback to them. I know some trade associations are asking their members to okay. compile their views; so they can submit it as a group. Okay. Uh, but I think Treasury is you know, earnestly trying to seek feedback on some questions they haven't resolved yet. For example, how do you define AI, and how do you create the red line yeah. operating the type of AI that they want to uh, limit versus a type of AI that, that is okay to invest in in
0: China. Yeah. So if I'm a VC firm or a PE firm and I wanna, you know, I want I want my word to be heard on this, contact somebody through Treasury.
3: Treasury or through the various, you know, investment trade associations here in London. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Investment trade associations may have a little more, a little more pull, right. Okay. Um Louis, you want to jump in here? Oh, yeah, I'd like to
1: zoom out a little bit, um, yeah. Brett and you know, I thought you teed us up very nicely talking about how the the our two economies started to come together forty years ago. Yeah. Um, and pick up a little bit when China joined the World Trade Organization in in two thousand. And I think we saw, you know over the fifteen years that followed, um, the greatest uh, flow of, of trade and investment between the United States and China than than in in, in the history of the world, mm-hmm. and um, really a boom in in uh, technology happened at the same time, and I don't think that's a coincidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, U.S. technology companies need access to Chinese capital and to Chinese consumers, and I believe Chinese companies need access to U.S. Uh, technology and U.S. consumers. We're the two largest uh, consumer economies in the world. And uh, to think that there could be decoupling, um, I think, is um, not good for the world. And I and I don't think it's uh, it's healthy. And I'd like to point out that there's more uh, trade and investment uh, going back and forth between China and the United States than than ever before. Um, of, of course, there's been a, a giant chilling effect uh, that, that's happened since Sciphius uh, tightened up the screws uh, five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that you know when I look at this outbound investment screening program, i'm I'm looking at the bright side. So what are the bright sides? Uh, the bright sides are is ours, I don't believe it's going to apply. Uh, to any uh, historical investments so it's only for the go forward number two i don't believe it's going to apply to uh, chinese subsidiaries of u.s corporations and all of you please correct me if i got that wrong um and three i I think it's limited to some very very focused and specific high-tech areas uh, in ai in quantum computing and in semiconductors, where um, you know, I think that you know, the leading leading technology development is happening in the United States. Uh, so I, I don't think that um, you know this is really going to have a major effect. Uh, I, I'm I'm more concerned about the, the various bills that are pending in the in the Congress uh, that would uh, be much more broad based uh, and and deep. Um, sitting here in Silicon Valley, uh, Brett, HK, and, and Christopher, um, I can tell you that there are a number of uh, venture capital firms here that are focused on investing in China, in China, in bringing U.S. businesses to China, and in helping uh, Chinese companies access the U.S. markets. And and uh, as HK notes, they have been under fire for the last several weeks as the 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 house committee, uh, on China has issued subpoenas uh, asking them to justify and and to try and embarrass them and intimidate them. Um, (laughs) I, I don't believe that's, uh, that's going to work. Uh, but I do think that, uh, you know, those firms are probably looking at investing in other areas, uh, for the near term than China. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic that, uh, those that are building technology will will uh, look through this and continue to to feel empowered to do what what we need them to do, uh, which is make the world a better place. <laughs> nice. Kerr, welcome back. <laughs> Thank you, Brett. <laughs> sorry about
4: my quick break there yeah. Yeah. <laughs> internet's usually not not this not this bad but uh for some reason it is it is acting up now but you know i just wanted to to make a quick comment about some of the things that christopher was 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 mentioning about you know the, the yellow light i think that's a good analogy and what we've got here in the in the on the china side is the, the yellow light is flashing but we've got a traffic cop in the middle of the intersection kind of waving us through and, and that's, that's the messaging from Beijing, from people like Li Qiang and, 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 and others that are saying, look, this is still you know, an investment opportunity. We want foreign investment, which they do. Um, unfortunately, they're, the actions and the words aren't really matching up. And so what we've got is, is some challenge And to, to Christopher's second point, which is getting advisors and getting advice. There's a lot of pressure right now on that sector, um, on consulting firms, uh, law firms. Um, just a lot of pressure and scrutiny and it's it's um few actions have, have taken place recently and you know one is the the change in the espionage law i mean i think it's always been pretty clear that espionage per se obviously is illegal here the way it is everywhere but what they've done is expanded that to to talk about um actions that are not just you know sort of uh, around state secrets, but expanding it to include everything that's sort of quote unquote, not in China's interests. And that's sufficiently vague to to give people pause in terms of how they collect information and disseminate information. That is layered on top of the existing uh, data protection law and that the data protection law in particular is is causing issues with multinationals which are by definition multinational and and there's so many businesses uh that well put it this way it only affects businesses that 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 have data you know so so who's who's that right so so you're you're really seeing um uh a reaction to that people are very cautious i was talking to um to a CFO the other day, here in China, um, that that runs a you know a Fortune 100 company over here, and he had just issued an order for all his China staff that if they travel outside of China on business pleasure, it doesn't matter, they cannot travel with electronics, electronics of any kind, laptop, cell phone, nothing. So. Wow. They're just that worried about accidentally getting caught up in that in the, in that in that data protection law. So, so the environment here, and so it's both. It's the regulatory environment, some challenges around that, coupled with a a, a challenging economic environment in terms of limits on growth. Um, this is going to be a, a low-growth market for quite a long time. It's very large, and, and it's very attractive for its total size, and there are a lot of other things happening here. I think, Louis, I caught the, 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 the last part of what he was talking about in terms of innovation and investing in technologies that make the world a better place. You've got a lot of that happening here. It's an incredibly creative place, incredibly yeah. innovative, But there's but that is really being dampened. Um, by the by, all of these different different things, and so, you know, having said that, you know, back to the traffic cop that's waving us through, um, and and to that point, if this is not a good time to sort of come over here wandering around looking for opportunistic investments, um, it is a good time if you're very targeted and very clear on what it is you're trying to achieve with an investment or an acquisition. Have the right set of advisors, then you are actually going to going to have um, high level of enthusiasm at, the, at at the government level. So again, this traffic cop is giving some mixed signals. But if you're over here doing a very targeted investment, you you know you are going to get that in, in enthusiasm from the, the 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 local government. You will get that that meeting with the party secretary that that you might not have been able to to get in other circumstances. Hmm. But you do need to be cautious.
0: <laughs> so in some respects, it's a good time because you get more attention maybe than you would have. Five or 10 years.
4: Exactly. It, it, it could be. And I, I would maintain I'm I'm, you know, most of the especially the foreign companies are looking at this market as large, but but low growth and low profit because costs have, have come up. Sure. Um, so so it's going to be that kind of market for a while. I'm actually optimistic. Well, I'm cautiously optimistic because I think there are there is a sort of a series of policy choices that could be made over here that could lead to larger, to to bigger growth. Um, This year is going to be a challenge. You know, the numbers, consensus
1: estimates are somewhere around, you know, around the five number, plus or minus. I thought I would just jump in there. Um, In preparation for this this discussion, I I was reading a a really good piece in The New Yorker that was profiling Elon Musk's relationships in China. And one of the things that struck me is that uh, they make more... uh, Tesla cars in Shanghai than, I believe, uh, anywhere in the world. Yeah. And uh, he apparently was received like royalty. And you know, his relationship there is, is very important. And, and I think um, demonstrative of, of how the two economies continue to be very, in fact, reliant and dependent yeah. uh, on each other, both from an investment, trade and technology uh, perspective. And I was um pleased to read that it seems like the Chinese government is trying very hard to have good relationships with american business and and one of the things I wanted to ask her as really the former ambassador of u s business to China um, how u um, s business leaders are being received in China as they visit. I know Tim Cook has recently visited and obviously elon uh, and and I'm sure many others and i'm I'm curious as to how that's presented in the local press and how those they're received by the national politicians. And Kerr, you've explained to me many times in the past how you really have to look at China in two different ways. One is the national politicians and two is the regional, provincial, Mm -hmm. local people that are looking responsible for investment and jobs. Yeah,
4: exactly. I mean I think they could expect almost red carpet treatment here, even though even the companies that are not, you know, Elon Musk and Tesla um the they, they'll, they'll, they can expect a, a very warm welcome in a cooperative government they are desperate for anything that even can, can symbolically uh project confidence and that's really what they're looking for is you know symbols of confidence that you know all is well we can still do this we can you know there is a there is a path forward but that's frankly what's missing you know people here on the street they just don't feel it anymore and again I, in 30 years of working in China, I mean, it's it's I've never felt this before, you know, this this (laughs) funk. Um, So so that's that is concerning. And again, as I was mentioning, I mean, I actually do see a path towards better growth uh, numbers here in China if if they make some of the right policy choices. And I think I think and then they have done that in the past. I mean, they we know how much they've invested in infrastructure. Um, right now, I think the the issue is productivity. They're going to have to find a way to get the productivity number up since they don't have the demographics going in their favor. And, But I'm an optimist, you know, around that. I think with a combination of technology and investment in education and job creation in appropriate areas, I think, you know, there, there is a better path forward. We're not on it now. Uh, so let's be clear. I mean, there's a lot of... Uh, things going on right now that are moving in that opposite direction and and you know the foreign investment t- investors aren't the only ones that are, are are seeing that yellow flashing yellow light i think the local people as well i mean the one business that's doing extremely well by the wealth management <laughs> you know, the guys that are able to find ways for for um, chinese investors to move, move assets offshore are 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 in a boom boom period right now so that's that's an indication
0: but I think we should be clear here that this particular executive order and the stuff associated with it has to do with the migration of private capital from the U.S. to China. It doesn't have anything to do with manufacturing relationships, supply chain relationships, any of the rest of that stuff. That correct. correct.
2: Because all those other things we talked about earlier, those five to six layers of time, cost and aggravation, that the U.S. government is deliberately put in place in order to accelerate the decoupling. Mm-hmm. Those other things, the trade war, the CFIUS process, export controls, sanctions on certain companies, on certain investments in you know, the Chinese defense sector or companies that are defense sector adjacent, all of those things, Brad, are already designed to cover those issues and create friction there. This new executive order is... Uncle Sam wants to be able to capture the transfer in knowledge, know-how, right? The, the ability to innovate that yeah. comes with the, the intangibles that come with a U.S. company making a strategic investment in these sectors of China. And right. so if you are a U.S. company or you're a U.S.-based company or you're a foreign person who is availing yourself of the United States market to conduct business foreign investments outside the United States, it makes a lot of sense to know before you go, based on the kinds of criteria that occur in HK if identified. Um, and it also makes sense, you know, getting back to some of the points that HK was making about congressional intervention and some of the, uh, you know, discussions that Louis also raised with respect to the, you know, the Chinese Commission and some of the pressure that, that Silicon Valley is under. You know, in Washington, D.C. right now, we have matters of law and the matter the law is pretty clear and you can make arguments based on the law. But a lot of decisions that we're being that we're seeing government agencies make or government officials make in those five or six different areas that we've discussed really are based not on law and facts, but impressions and feelings. And that really underscores the importance of having a good story to tell and good advisors, you know, helping you along the way. Um, You know, we've had scenarios where an allegation by a congressional committee that turned out to be completely false has, you know, led U.S. government executive branch agencies to cancel government contracts. (laughs) Or where a congressional member of Congress will make a referral to CFIUS And suddenly, you know, one of our clients will be under a self-initiated CFIUS review, even though that client didn't receive a foreign investment. Right, so all all these matters of impression and matters of feeling sort of get us into this really wound up space where knowing what you're doing, knowing where you're going, knowing what your plan is and having good intelligence and good advisors is the best way to deal with the subjectivities in the headaches.
0: Chris, is it possible to litigate matters of feeling?
2: You know, I, um, that, that, that may be a question for my wife, not a question but, but let me just let me just state at the outset that when you're dealing, as soon as you hang the word national security on something, right, as soon as you securitize yeah. an issue, whether it's trade, whether it's investment, whether it's immigration, yeah. you know, whether it is product safety, anything you want, as soon as you turn it into a national security event, what you're doing is you're saying that the national security view, view or that lens is the most important way of evaluating a problem. Contrast that with some of the ways of evaluating a problem set that Louis just described. What kinds of things can we create? What kind of linkage can we develop? What kind of cooperation can we you know, foster and engender? When you look at those two lenses, you really get back to some of the stuff that HK was talking about earlier, where some US government agencies are looking for opportunities to grow and develop economies where other U.S. government agencies are really, really concerned about the way that those opportunities and connections might inadvertently benefit the bad guys within a foreign country. Um, and those things are always in tension. And one of the fun things that will be interesting to see over the coming months is just how does Treasury. Uh, and the security team at Treasury, which normally does this on an inbound investment, from an inbound perspective, investment perspective, how are they going to balance these equities on an outbound basis? Um, and where and how will those balance be different under this executive will of what we've seen with Citius since FIRMA was passed in 2018? Right, so I
1: wanted to ask you a question. Um, and I noted that in the executive order that they're looking to regulate not only the uh, the outbound investment but the outbound expertise. And I wondered if you had any thoughts, HK, on, on what was meant by that and how that is likely to be interpreted in the many comment letters that come and in the, any kind of final rule.
3: Yeah, the outbound expertise is is in the preamble of the um, um, the Treasury notice, but it's not in the actual. Proposed regulation, so they're really focused on um, the capital. The capital, though, is supposedly a proxy for expertise. So, if you're a venture capital firm and you're investing in a certain Chinese company, presumably you are, as an active investor, providing that expertise, the counsel, the networking, etc., to that same uh, Chinese company. But there's nothing in the draft regulations that I've seen that refers specifically to a regulation either requiring notification or blocking of outbound expertise or intangibles.
1: So as a result, you wouldn't expect to see that in the final rule.
3: Um, No. So I wanted to add here is that, you know, um, this is the first chapter of a longer book, right? And um, I don't think, you know, it's written by several authors who don't agree on the conclusion. So Congress has a say here. They've got, as I've mentioned before, um, draft legislation that um, goes beyond the narrow executive order to look at six sectors as opposed to three. It doesn't have any blocking mechanism so far, um, but requires notification for all six sectors. Then you go even more, you know, down the road in the spectrum, you see the letters from Congressman Gallagher, uh, to the four venture capital firms asking about past investments, asking about what process do they have to vet future investments, and then referring to a list of about 19 different technology sectors, including fintech and biotech and outer space. So, you know, if we're looking at the executive order right now narrowly, which is fine, but I think um, all investors should be wary that um, there's more discussion out there about other ways to tackle this problem and the executive order won't be the final this. Final I'll also add too that we're talking about the federal level. At the state level, Indiana has already passed a law that prohibits the state pension from investing in any Chinese company uh, they're also requiring divestment over time so um, that's one voice from one state iowa has a similar law a little more narrowly focused but you kind of see this you know uh, organic you know growth within the country of uh, people trying to find ways to curb uh investment into uh, chinese companies for any number of reasons um and that goes to one of the lessons i wanted to mention that in doing this for the past three four years we're noticing a real you know, change in the definition of national security. Chris correctly said that national security is a really powerful term. It was used to justify a lot of different actions by the government. The problem is that over the past few years, it's being defined in ways beyond the traditional meaning. If you question people now uh, in Washington, the definition of national security includes competitive advantage, uh, supply chain risk, and other factors. And that's problematic, I think, for investors who want to comply because the red lines keep changing, right? Uh, in the future, as I mentioned, it could include biotech or it could include commercial space technologies.
2: You know, one, if, if I could just riff on that very briefly, during the Cold War, national security was aerospace and defense or anything involving intelligence, right? During the global war on terrorism, national security was all of that stuff plus homeland security. And so suddenly we were really worried about, you know, who's in control of our drinking water, who can get into our, you know, network, our telecommunications networks, who's running the power plant down the road, who who's operating our ports. We've now moved from, you know, national security, which is a a world that's defined by, you know, bipolar competition or competition between states into Homeland Security, where we are really worried about non state actors into a world where we're now concerned about industrial security, right? We are concerned about all of those commercial and technological factors that exist, regardless of whether you're a state, a non-state actor, a corporation or an individual. And so, you know, as we sort of destroy the the boundaries that we've created between state and non-state and between public and private over time, and all of this stuff gets mixed up in the same blender. Suddenly, everything becomes national security, and we're we're looking, you know, in our Cipius cases, with our team, we we're looking at stuff that you know a decade or so ago we would never have considered as being a risk. Um, the difficulty with having a definition that's constantly expanding is the definition is meaningless, and it becomes a bit of a political power play. And political power plays, getting back to your point, Brett, it's really hard to litigate feelings. <laughs> so have a good, have a good story, know what your objectives are, know before you go and bring good friends and counselors along the way. So you know how to manage, manage these issues and get ahead of the problem rather than as we like to say in my practice, drive the bus to the extent that you can rather than being run over by
0: it. <laughs> people pay you for that advice, Chris? they do and i just
2: gave it for free (laughs) free, free advice but um, on all all this stuff like it's really easy to get wound up by the headlines and if you look at the executive order the executive order is just it's really not that amazing right it's designed to accommodate just about anything that congress might do in the future if you needed to expand the number of sectors you just unplug one section and drop in some new ones um but the, the thing that matters here is being ready, not overreacting to the problem and being ready. Invo- involves taking into account everything that everybody on this teleconference has raised so far and doing it proactively rather than reactively.
4: Right. You know, just a quick comment about that, Chris. You know, it's interesting, you know, the litigating feelings and things like this. It's it, it strikes <laughs> me how similar US it, the uh, American legislation yes. and, and actions are to what, what they what we're accustomed to here in China. Yes. You know, over here they legislate feelings all the time, right? And and actually the the um, the there and there's this kind of a game over here about, you know, the, the orders come down from Beijing and then they get to the provincial level and the municipal level and they almost get accelerated at every level because everybody kind of wants to be more Catholic than the Pope. It's very it's performative. Very performative. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, so you've got that, and we see
2: some of those same dynamics in the U.S. national security agencies, yeah. or the agencies that didn't used to have a national security role that yeah. now suddenly realize they can set up a national security unit, get a security clearance, and then those folks tend to be yeah. more Catholic than the Pope, as you were saying.
4: Yeah, I think I think you've got that phenomenon over here, and I think the business community is getting the message that that now you know national security is front and center and the decoupling is real whether you want to call it decoupling or de-risking or what have you to to what Brett's earlier point or question was about the supply chains and that's for real and and it's really making an impact on on the the fundamental model of the multinational corporation where it it by definition operates across borders it, it uh, the the multinational company likes to to allocate uh, capacity across what the way Tesla is right now they're they they're actually shipping cars making cars in in China where their cost basis is lower and then they're taking advantage of the of the of the cheaper RMB and 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 shipping those to to the U.S. where they can get more profit. All that stuff is changing, and uh, Tesla I think is the exception there. Apple is the exception. Um, where they're actually manufacturing in china for for um to, to meet demand outside of china you're starting to really see a change in that fundamental business model where they are isolating the china business and you know and, and again the, the pressure is coming from both sides in order to do that and so you know again from the china side they have successfully sort of isolated the digital economy. We know that we've been, we've talked about that before. So the question is, are other industries going to eventually look like that as well? And, and that's kind of a a shocking thing. One, one quick question, you know, we're back to what HK was talking about, you know, with the expertise when I, you know, can't export the expertise. My, uh, when I saw that in the executive order, I had kind of a historic deja vu moment, you know, it sort of, um reminding me of you know back in the day when Alexander Hamilton you know the United States was developing as a as developing country and Alexander Hamilton encouraged entrepreneurs to actively steal British technology because <laughs> in the United States the colonies had none and mm-hmm. that that law was was the British put that put that law in place with cannot cannot export expertise and they literally had people standing on the dock in 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 England to prevent people that had textile mill know-how and if they, they knew that that person was in a position to where they had that kind of expertise, they wouldn't let them get on the ship. And so, you know, here we are, you know, 250 years later, we're, we're, we're kind of doing the same thing. So that, that's kind of what, what my reaction was to that clause in the executive order. Kind of
0: hey, Kerr, since you've just given us such a great uh, little history lesson, I'd like to give you the opportunity to quickly plug your new book
4: oh thank you so much brett yeah (laughs) um uh so i put 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 together a new uh, a new book it's called selling to china it's really kind of an extension of my work you know from with the american chamber of commerce and really talking about you know what what is it like to operate a, a large foreign business here here on the ground in in shanghai so it has lessons In it, um, about kind of that relationship between business and government, talks a lot about uh, competing against local firms. So it's not necessarily a book about U.S.-China relations per se, Mm -hmm. but but, but that is the, the backdrop of the book itself. It's really about business operations and, you know, how... How uh, some of these businesses have evolved and adjusted to the changing environment over here. So, uh, so thanks for the, the opportunity. Yeah, uh, selling to China, it's available on Amazon in electronic form and hardcover. Thanks. Perfect. Thank you. So,
0: Chris, um, you've mentioned CIFIUS a couple times. Um, mm-hmm. And so, maybe you could give us kind of the 30 second reminder of what CIFIUS is. Sure. And then, and then also tell us how is this recent executive order different from that?
2: Okay, so syphilis sounds like syphilis. Just as easy to catch, just as hard to get rid of. Um, now you'll remember how to say it and what it is for the rest of your life. Uh, it stands for Committee on Foreign Investment, investment from a foreign country. Mm-hmm. Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. So, is the British like to say what's on the what's on the tin is what's inside the tin?
0: right what's on the label Mm
2: -hmm. it is what's in the label is what it does Mm -hmm. so if you have a foreign person doesn't matter whether they're a corporation an individual uh, a family trust a venture capital enterprise you know a, a limited partnership whatever if you have a foreign person and they want to come to the united states and acquire an entity that has assets or operations in the united states right, that is subject to falls within CFIUS's jurisdiction. So the first okay. question is, do you have a foreign investor? So if you a Chinese entity that's coming to make an investment, then the answer is yes. Second question is, do you have a U.S. business? Well, if a foreign investor wants to come in and buy a taco truck in Washington, D.C., believe it or not, that is a foreign investment in the United States. The third question then is, does Uncle Sam care about the taco truck? Well, if the taco truck is making tacos, the answer is no. But if the Taco Talk is an AI enabled rocket <laughs> manufacturing company that happens to serve Taco Tuesday, have Taco Tuesday in the canteen, then we have a very, very different situation. And there are certain types of criteria that will trigger either a mandatory filing based on the target side characteristics or militate in favor of a voluntary filing. But bottom line, Scythius has unlimited power to investigate a transaction to modify the terms of the transaction and even to block a transaction. That power has been tested in the US federal courts at the appellate level. And the last person who tried to test that got taken to the woodshed by the court of appeals
0: to the federal circuit. Wow. But, just, but just, to be, just to be clear, legitimate taco trucks are okay, right?
2: Yeah, so Excellent. we use the taco truck as an example, right? Is that a foreign investment in the United States? If Louie and I own a taco truck mm-hmm. and Brett, you're coming from China and you want to mm-hmm. buy a third of the interest in the taco truck, that's a Chinese investment in the U.S. business. It's within CFIUS's jurisdiction. Okay. Does CFIUS care about the taco truck? Absolutely no. not, Got it. unless the taco truck is a really interesting is it. Something more so than it,
0: so it does fall under the jurisdiction, but it's not likely to catch anybody's attention.
2: But it's, it's it? It, the jurisdiction is the is different from whether the government is gonna make you do something or whether the government's gonna use its prosecutorial discretion to open an investigation. Sure. Um, one of the areas where we see a lot of action in the CFIA space where there aren't mandatory filings is when there's sensitive personal data involved. A lot of healthcare and, and life sciences companies Um, We've seen a tremendous amount of CFIUS interest in that space because the concern is that the U.S., the Chinese government can get access and information about U.S. healthcare information, U.S. insurance information, the state of U.S. financial, you know, individual financial information, that sort of stuff. Now, how is this thing different? Well, first off, as I mentioned earlier, they're not using any of the CFIUS legislation. They're using the same legislation that Jimmy Carter used to sanction Iran in 1979. Yeah. Right. That. So it's really different legislation. It's much broader that that legislation has been upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1983 in a case called Dames and Moore v. Reagan. So the government is actually asserting more power in some ways. Hmm. Um, and that power is much more flexible because the goal here isn't to set up a route. The, the goal wasn't to set up a review process initially. It's to set limitations on what kinds of investments can occur if those intangibles are going along with the investment. That's why the the really key thing to watch at, you know, during the 45-day public comment period, and once we get an interim rule, and then ultimately a final rule, is how does CFIUS implement the aspirations that are in the executive order? I think we're likely to see a pilot program or something similar before they finally get to a final rule. And the final rule will probably be driven by some of the congressional action that HK has been talking about.
0: Got it. Okay. Uh, I think we will wrap this up in the next five minutes or so. So, uh, Louie, additional topics that you uh, think we should try to get in in the next five minutes?
1: Well, I, I think um, what we're likely to see in the next, you know, three to four months before we have a final rule is, is uh, uh, I expect as a, as a lawyer in Silicon Valley who represents emerging growth companies and venture capital firms trying to make investments, uh, as as wh- whether it's okay to proceed. Uh, and together with my partner, Christopher, we, we have uh, been navigating this for some time. And one of the things we do, Brad, is we look to find out whether the company's technology uh, it, it is what we call a TID business. And if the company is unable to, to rep that it's not a TID business, then we look to ask uh, the investors to certify that they are uh, U.S. persons, or if they're not, uh, what they are, and um, you know, Christopher and I have been navigating that for some time, and and I expect that that it's going to be business as usual uh, in that regard. Um, uh, Christopher, you know, when when we look at at these transactions, you know, t- tell us a bit about what's a TID business.
2: Yeah. So on the standard Sifius stuff, and this is current state of play. It's not where the executive order will go on the current Sifius side we look at you know it's the taco truck question how interesting is that taco truck does that taco truck have critical technology well guess what all of the sectors that have been identified for the outbound investment issue yeah, for prioritization with the outbound investment executive order they are already folded into the CFIUS process as critical technology second thing we look at is critical infrastructure right that gets us back to that homeland security stuff of the russians running the power plant the North Koreans have access to our water, right? So critical infrastructure, sort of stuff. Proximity to military bases is another issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, as we were mentioning earlier, sensitive personal data that can be financial and insurance data, but more and more and more, it is healthcare data. It is you know uh, geolocation data. It's the kind of stuff that would give a foreign government insight into particular individual or people inside a government agency who might be employees of a government agency, Um, or in some instances, we're aware of cases where, you know, CFIUS intervened because the Department of Defense determined the kind of information that a particular company might have would actually serve as an early indicator as to whether a Navy ship was about to deploy. Um, So that TID stands for Technology Infrastructure critical technology, critical infrastructure, critical data, sensitive personal data. Right now, on the outbound side, we're, with these new executive order, we're only seeing a focus on critical technology. But based on everything that HK is tracking up on the Hill and some of the other stuff we've seen develop in the CFIA space over the last five years, it would not surprise me that the final chapter, the final chapter of the story brought infrastructure and data issues in uh, in much the same way we currently see with the city's process.
1: that's a great segue as i wanted to ask uh, hk you know how hk you work with a lot of u.s investment funds and endowments and uh, corporations giving them advice on on how to look at their portfolio how has your advice evolved in the last several weeks in, in light of the executive order about what they should be what they should be anticipating next and what they should be doing now
3: yeah, thanks. So the draft or expected treasury regulation will be narrow, as we talked about, focused on active investors and those three sectors. But we warned them that the executive order is only the one one element to worry about, right? I think the broader risk here is reputational risk. Um, outside the executive branch, um, the public is now scrutinizing whether you know pensions or endowments or foundations have made indirect investments in what they deem to be problematic companies, the problem is that the public is defining what problematic is. It can be defined by a politician, an NGO, the media, or even a blogger, depending upon how they define it. So, the, for example, the executive order is focused on national security, not human rights or Xinjiang, but a reporter could easily write an article about an investment firm investing in a company tied to Xinjiang that will be technically allowed by the executive order, but reputationally hard to defend against if it's on the front page of the New York Times, for example. So reputational risk, I think, um, is probably the biggest risk for most um,
2: uh, passive investors. And that gets us back to the litigating feelings issues that Brett was raising earlier.
0: (laughs) Well, gentlemen, we need to wrap this up. Um, I, for one, am feeling very comforted by the fact that taco trucks are all right. Uh, This has been a great discussion um, about a super, super interesting topic, both for investors and also, honestly, it's a super interesting topic in terms of those of us who follow uh, follow global t- politics. Uh, Lou, you wanna take us home?
1: I wanna thank our panelists for joining. And uh, certainly if there's uh, new news from Capitol Hill, we'll get this group together again. Uh, and until then, uh, please feel free to reach out to any of us. Uh, we'll circulate a copy of this video and some takeaways very shortly. Thanks again, Brett, for hosting us. Thank you, it's been a great conversation.
0: This has been the Fourthly Podcast. If you have ideas for future episodes or people you think I should interview, send me an email at at brett@forthly.com. And don't forget to rate and share this
4: show. It really helps. Until next time, I'm Brett Waters. Thanks so much for listening.